0: On this week's podcast, I sit down with Henrietta Trays of VEDA Partners to discuss the expectations for the China deal, how funds are positioned, and which details of the deal actually matter. In addition, I'll give some quick thoughts on BMY Celgene and the recent news that Wellington is opposing the transaction. I'm Mike Samuels, founder and portfolio manager of Street Capital, and this is according to sources for February 27th, 2019. It's crossing the tape right now. Let me explain what's happening here. Some breaking news to share with you this morning, M&A related. There's good activism. I think eBay is in that situation. They got a jewel in PayPal. There's bad activism. Unfortunately, JCPenney was a dying company. Examples of activism gone awry. It was not a surprise to me that that deal fell through. Hello and welcome to According to Sources, a podcast focused on mergers and acquisitions, deal speculation, activism, events and special situations, and the sources that cover them all. Since the China trade agreement finally seems closer than ever, I wanted to reach out to Veda Partners, a DC investment advisor and consultant that forecasts how changing political policies will influence investments, and get their view on what I view as the most important aspect of the China deal, which is... Is this an overhang removed to be bought or sell the news event? But before I play the interview, I just wanted to briefly discuss this afternoon's news that Wellington, one of the biggest holders of Bristol Myers, is opposing the deal with Celgene. Now, Celgene stock is currently trading around $82 in the after hours, which essentially implies that the odds of a deal are less than 50%. That's if you, you know, if you deal break price is 66 And I probably think that's too low, but for argument's sake, let's say it's 66, you've got $16 up, $16 down and $18 up, plus the CBR, which the market is pricing in at $2. So tomorrow is going to be painful for anyone long this spread, but hear me out and why I think that it's still more likely than not to go through. Number one, Wellington is an 8% holder, however, only controls 1.7% of the vote. The rest of those shares are actively managed accounts. So while they are a top holder, they don't control that much of the vote. Number two, Vanguard is the number one holder of Bristol Myers, but also nearly the number one holder of Celgene. And the difference in Vanguard' Celgene's holdings at 66, the deal break price versus 102, the deal price, is over $1.8 billion. And it seems to me that it would seem hard to believe that they would find it smart to vote down that kind of a gain. Now, this shareholder overlap between Bristol holders and Celgene holders is found at State Street, Invesco, J.P. Morgan. Simply put, it doesn't make a lot of sense for these co-holders of Bristol and Celgene to vote the deal down just because they'd be throwing away too much of a gain. Number three, what is the plan B if you're a holder of Bristol-Myers? The rewards for blocking the deal just don't seem painfully obvious to me. Outside of putting Bristol in play there just doesn't seem to be a clear and obvious route for value cre- for value creation at bristol. number 4, why is wellington doing this? well, wellington touts itself as an active manager and it's traditionally never been an activist investor. and my feeling and the feeling that i'm getting from talking to other hedge funds is that more and more it's becoming difficult for companies like wellington to justify the fees when their returns are so closely resembling something like an S&P 500 ETF. But by going activists in a name like Bristol with basically very low stakes if they aren't successful, they still get their name in the Wall Street Journal as a disruptor and something that they can point out and kind of hang their hat on during investor pitches. So, to conclude, you know, tomorrow is going to be ugly for anyone holding this spread simply because people are really out over their skis along this. I think a lot of people thought that's the starboard headlines are simply an overhang removed and an opportunity to put the spread on wider. So the morning will be ugly, but I really think anywhere over 27%, 26% growth spread, the risk-reward really skews in my favor. Okay, back to China. On Tuesday afternoon, I interviewed Henrietta Trey's managing partner at VEDA, She was actually an early guest of the podcast during last year's ZTE ban as it related to NXPI Qualcomm, and uh, she joined me yesterday to discuss the many angles and possible investment conclusions to the China trade agreement. Based on your conversations with the clients of VEDA, do you think that the actual details of the trade agreement matter, or is just the end of trade tariffs the only thing that matters?
1: I'd say 60 plus percent, maybe 60 to 65 percent of our clients generally only care to know what's happening with tariffs. They're much less concerned about individual components of the deal that has just in the last 48 hours shifted a little bit to folks trying to pay attention to what's going on with electric vehicle negotiations or currency negotiations um there is uh, rumblings about whether huawei will be looped into this and there could be you know some leniency for the cfo of huawei and the extradition case there so there are in very niche circles focuses on Individual pieces. Um, we have other clients who are very focused on corn subsidies and purchases of specific types of U.S. commodities. So that would take up, I'd say, 40% of our invest our client base. But the vast majority only care about finding out whether the tariffs are going to stay on, come off, or be added to.
0: Do you believe that uh, your clients, the the people that are are concerned with the investment angle of the China agreement, are specifically concerned with one particular sector? Like, are they really just concerned about, let's say, semiconductors, or is it just a broad-based situation?
1: It's really client-specific. So just there's a ton of folks who are focused on semiconductors. I would say really smart people are focused on the components that are going on Behind the scenes, specifically with the export control restrictions that are targeted at industries like um, artificial intelligence, autonomous vehicles, uh, biotechnology, basically the future of everything, there is a robust focus on the street where they're not concerned with tariffs exclusively, there's a lot of focus on the high-tech equipment side and not necessarily just in terms of the state of play with the U.S.-China negotiations on a very high level, but also with what the um, federal agencies are doing behind the scenes, whether it's CFIUS or Treasury or Commerce or the Department of uh, Defense and Homeland Security. Those agencies are moving on a separate track to meaningfully restrict the future of technology in a lot of different ways. And so there is a pretty healthy investor contingent that's focused on that piece. Um, But aside from that, it really is going to be client specific. So as I mentioned, I have a client who's very focused on corn prices, um, whether or not it goes into ethanol or feed, there is a major concern with those commodities because of the retaliatory tariffs that the rest of the globe has put on the U.S., including Canada and Mexico, but also China, around those kinds of commodities. So those are other big focuses. And then I'll do, you know, one-off investigations into, like I said, electric vehicles and discussions there. There is uh, less focus on the currency than I would have expected, um, but that tends to pop up every now and again. Just mostly concerned on whether or not there will be a, a broader deal reached. Not necessarily that folks are expecting the U.S. to meaningfully exert pressure on China to curb any currency adjustments that they
0: make. Okay, I'm gonna. Uh, I read your note yesterday on the China agreement. I'm just gonna read one quote from it. You wrote we continue to expect that the threat of tariffs and potentially the continuation of existing tariffs will last beyond a Trump-She signing ceremony. Maybe you can just extrapolate on that a little bit more.
1: Sure, um, it all goes back to you cannot prove that you have done anything of merit to clear intellectual property theft or end enforced technology transfer or any end any state own enterprise access or curbed your market access or opened it up in one day. It's not physically possible. It must have benchmarks that exist into the future. And the reason that you would adhere to those benchmarks is because the threat of tariffs is what's in your face in case you don't comply. So it's literally impossible for me to imagine a world where the threat of tariffs is removed on day one. Um, it. It makes no sense, but it is an emerging. It has been a constant refrain that I've heard from investors, who again are largely only focused on the tariffs as you know, sort of these binary events—they're either on or they're off—and the reality is that the administration has set up these frameworks under Section 301 and Section 232 to have the authority to impose these tariffs for at least three years. That's not an accident. That is very much on purpose. And USTR Leifheiser has told us that many, many times over the course of the last two years. Um, Furthermore, he even talks about how he's got plans to launch new Section 301 investigations into Chinese labor practices. And we have another fresh Section 232 investigation into auto parts and automobiles coming in from China. So there is... It's inc- I can't fathom how people believe that a U.S.-China trade deal could be reached with no enforcement mechanism or think that the enforcement mechanism would be or could be anything other than tariffs. That is the, the only stick that the U.S. has. They have clearly abandoned the, DWT- the WTO. Um, they have not gotten the support of the European Union and Japan to confront China, at the WTO, using a sort of global perspective. And without that as a second option, your only remaining offer is to threaten tariffs tariffs. Unless you think that Lighthizer is going to all of a sudden start using carrots and say, you know, we'll give you X, Y, and Z in exchange for you making these promises that you've made to us um, on IP theft or forced tech transfer. It's it's nonsensical to think that there wouldn't be tariffs as a perpetual looming threat now compounding that the only thing that i hear about in enforcement mechanism land which is the primary crux of the conversation with the u.s and china right now Mm -hmm. is not about whether or not there will be tariffs it's how they'll be imposed so i don't hear oh hey will there be tariffs i hear hey is it going to be a carousel tariff is it going to be a rotating tariff is it going to be a snapback tariff the debate is around what kind of tariff it's going to be not whether or not there will be a tariff
0: right um So, I mean, last year when the sort of the ZTE ban was happening and Trump signed this resolution to to reinstate, you know, the buying of ZTE products, a flood of Democrats and and Republicans like Marco Rubio were opposed to that. And suddenly that became a a, like a front page issue. Is it possible that once this agreement is signed that we could again see a flood of uh, Democrats trying to oppose it uh, something to that degree?
1: I would argue that that's already happened. Yeah, and I would not even put it to just the Democrats, but Chuck Grassley, uh, the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, who has got extraordinary authority here and speaks for the farmers, and he is basically saying, you better not accept some half loaf deal. So it's not going to be just from the Democrats, who I know for certain have a coordinated plan of attack that they will be leveling at USTR Lighthizer as early as tomorrow to make sure that there are um, major concessions from China Extracted in exchange for all this pain that farmers and manufacturers have dealt with for the last year as these tariffs have been in place But it's also coming from the Republican caucus and also the business community So the blowback I think is underappreciated by the street and it will be fast and furious
0: Okay, if I was to ask you to uh, rank these three items in terms of importance in the mind of the president Here they are number one the idea of quote winning over China Two, the stock market's reaction to a deal. Or three, making trade terms more fair for American business, the actual crux of why he got into this mess to begin with.
1: I uh, Probably that exact
0: order, one, two, three. Winning, and then the stock market, and then the actual terms. Correct. Okay. So in your conversations with funds, is a China deal at this point an overhang removed that you think clients are looking to buy? Or at this point, is it a sell-the-news event?
1: Probably a sell-the-news event. Um, I would expect a bump on headlines that tariffs were actually removed. I don't have high odds the tariffs will come off. I think they will be maintained for some period of time into the future, and then the threat will be an escalation of the tariffs on a one-month, three-month, six-month, five-year basis so that will be an ongoing threat that would be a disappointment to the street because most folks are not expecting that right now Um, I do think that the street is less focused on the substantive demands um, unless they are focused on individual items and sectors like we discussed before if you're just looking at corn prices you're going to be thrilled if there's a major commitment from China to make major purchases of corn Um, if you are not commodities focused this deal is not going to have a whole lot for you you'll just be happy that the overhang of tariffs are off but it is a little bit of a convoluted message because the administration has simultaneously been saying that the tariffs are not impacting the U.S. economy; the impact is minuscule. Um, the manufacturing side of the equation is, you know, 92% supportive of President Trump, and they've gone out of their way not to belabor the onerous effects of these tariffs that have been in place for almost a year now on steel and aluminum that have uh, really hurt their industries, especially the small and mid-sized manufacturers. They're planning to get very loud in March because they will not be able to handle the ongoing spate of tariffs, both on steel and aluminum and on the $250 billion worth of goods coming in from China that largely are inputs at the industrial level. So um, it's, it's a cross-current here that we have to deal with, with the Trump administration telegraphing that the tariffs are not a problem and haven't been a big deal for the U.S. economy, coupled with the business community also staying relatively quiet because they are supportive of President Trump and want real concerns Sessions to be extracted. So I think that the street is focused on tariffs um, because they are so risky, because they could easily get so much worse, and the removal of the tariffs that have been in place to date is going to be a short-lived rebound. And then we'll have to deal with the underlying macroeconomic data that still um, is concerning to folks, and we don't know what the Fed's going to do, et cetera. So I think it's a sell-the-news rally um, because the immediate blowback is going to to be that the Trump administration didn't actually extract any concessions of merit or worth and moreover, if you're trying to find out what the merit of any you know negotiation or deal reached actually delivers to the United States, it's going to take months and years to deliver and come to fruition. Um, so I, I don't see a whole lot of great news, especially if the Enforcement mechanism is tariffs, As I believe it will be that would be A negative so any short term deal Handshake hey major you know meeting At Mar-a-Lago which China Just agreed to to have this meeting at Mar-a-Lago Which in my opinion is a major Concession to Trump's vanity Mm. And a way for China to not Actually um, deliver on Anything big I think having it hosted At Mar-a-Lago is actually uh, Probably going to result in for instance The Chinese committing to purchase less Soybeans it's actually a give to have the event at mar-a-lago they tried to have it on an island off the coast of asia and the u.s rejected that and president xi just acknowledged that it will be at mar-a-lago and i think that's exclusively to give trump um what he's looking for which is his own personal white house in florida as the place where the u.s and china came to a deal hence winning beating the number one goal Got um
0: There was an interesting exchange. I mean, I feel like last week or two weeks ago, the verbiage on this was that we were going to get a, uh, they called it a memorandum of understanding. And there was an exchange between Trump and Lighthizer that was caught on video. And I'm just going to play an excerpt from that video right now. Contracts last while they last. There's no term. They last while they last.
1: Mr. President,
0: By the way, I disagree. I think that a memorandum of understanding is not a contract uh, to the extent that we want. We're going to have, we're doing a memorandum of understanding that will be put into a final contract, I assume. But to me, the final contract, is really the thing, Bob, and I think you mean that too, is really the thing that means something. A memorandum of understanding is exactly that. It's a memorandum of what our understanding is. But to me, the contract is... A, the real question is, Bob, so we do a memorandum of understanding, which, frankly, you could do or not do. I don't care if you do it or not. To me, it doesn't mean very much. But if you do a memorandum, how long will it take to put that into a final binding contract? What?
1: From now on, we're not using the word memorandum understanding anymore. We're going to use the, the, the term trade agreement, all right? Okay, right? No more. We'll never use the term Good. agreement. We'll have the same document It's going to be called a trade agreement. We're never going to use MOU again.
0: So Henrietta, obviously very sort of sarcastic commentary. What you can't see uh, in the video is Mnuchin's almost kind of smirking in the background. What did you make of that whole exchange?
1: It was extraordinary. And if you'll permit me, I'll tell you a little backstory about what happened that day. Yeah. Because it was it was kind of wild. Um, feel free to edit this out if you want to, but it was interesting. I think you might like it. So earlier in the day, um, and I guess maybe even 48 hours before, as we started hearing that these MOUs were going to be what the administration used to get agreement from China on five or six key issues – It started to seep through to me via the investment community, some news outlets, and principally commodities purchases that the Chinese had committed and the USTR had created this idea of the memorandums of understanding being a temporary bridge to what would ultimately be a final deal. Now, of course, a memorandum of understanding is not a temporary bridge. It is a contract, as Leifheiser so thoughtfully explained in that exchange with the president. And they are designed to be these long-term commitments amongst nations, which, of course, do not have... A governing police body uh, outside of the WTO, which of course the president and Lighthizer and most of the administration reject. They hate the, uh, dispute settlement mechanisms generally. So the idea of policing China via a memorandum of understanding is something that you can only, you know, stand on decorum with. And hope works. You know, contract is only as valid as the contract is valid. I think that was Lighthizer's sort of exact summation, mm-hmm. which was. we we get what we get and we hope that everybody complies until they don't and then the contract is void and what the president did was basically say well that doesn't mean anything and the reality is is he's exactly right but you can't it's not like you're negotiating with some labor union that you can bring them to, to court over this is another sovereign nation and they're only going to comply with what they want to comply with and trump in five seconds or less basically undid that entire um, you know, decades long buildup of an entire legal practice by saying, well, it's meaningless and it's short term and it has no duration. And that is exactly what had been circulating amongst investment circles and from folks in the administration who were obviously not very familiar with trade policy and, and what USTR Lifehizer had painstakingly tried to bring about. So, in the span of 48 hours, it had gone from being a non existent thought process to think that memorandums of understanding could a be short term and B didn't mean anything to hearing it straight from the president just immediately undercutting everything that Lighthizer had done. So, um,
0: I mean, did, did, the- <laughs> did, you not, did you not hear, uh, or read Lighthizer's response as, as like borderline, like insubordinate?
1: Um, I think I, I understand how you could see it that way, um, but from my perspective, it was like explaining that 2 plus 2 equals 4. It does not equal 5, no matter how much you want to make it. So, mm-hmm. so I, I – and I, and I got that frustration from a lot of folks. Actually, I was emailing with the senior trade counsel on the House side about the potential for these memorandums to be short-lived earlier in the day, and the response I got was verbatim, that is insane. So the trade world, trade nerds and wonks around D.C. have a very secure and solid understanding of what MOUs are. Lifehizer was obviously operating under the assumption that the commander in chief would also have an understanding of the trade law that he'd been working on for the last 90 days, basically. And then for Trump to just come out and say MOUs are meaningless was exasperating. So I can see how insubordination would be somebody's take, but that person's not overly familiar with how hard it is to come up with trade deals, how hard the USTR has been working, and frankly, what an MOU is.
0: Got it. So once China is signed off on and and the ceremony at Mar-a-Lago happens, what now takes the headlines? Is it going to be drug reform? Is it going to be NAFTA? What's going to be front page now?
1: Um, Well, first of all, I think the U.S. and China are going to continue to be a major issue because, as I said, there's going to be enforcement mechanisms. So my next expectation is that we get a new deadline of, let's call it uh, June, followed by another deadline in September to have China meet specific preset conditions that they have agreed upon or risk the implementation of additional tariffs. Mm -hmm. So I think that that will create a new goalpost for us probably three months out. At a, at a minimum, followed by another six-month, 9 months and then a couple years-long continual goalposts to check in through. The Section 232 auto tariffs investigation needs to be made public um, probably within the month, I would suggest. Uh, there does need to, at a minimum, be an executive summary released to the public when they did it with the steel and aluminum tariffs and that investigation it took uh, I think exactly four weeks so that would point to uh, maybe about three weeks or less for us to see preliminary details of the auto tariffs investigation which I think will be or should be a major headline especially for Japan who is um, definitely threatened with these auto tariffs as is China and the EU Um, and then as we get later into the spring I think NAFTA will become a more concrete focus. Um, It is a major priority in Congress, but there's no urgency behind it. I continue to expect with 70% odds that the president will ultimately trigger 2205, which is when he sends a letter to Canada and Mexico basically saying, in six months, I'm withdrawing from NAFTA. That would be a perfect example of a major market-moving headline that would be Fiercely negative, but wouldn't be immediately uh, impactful to the US economy because it would create this six month window for essentially Speaker Pelosi to negotiate uh, with the White House, with Canada, with Mexico, and see what's going on there. Um, The one other thing I'd say is that if we get a deal with Mexico and, uh, sorry, with China, and the tariffs that are in place already stay on, which I think is pretty likely. Mm-hmm. then um, the manufacturing industry, the business community has advised me that they will no longer be playing with kid gloves with this administration. They will start to treat him like they've treated previous administrations, which is, you know, you're not a neophyte anymore. You have understanding of what goes on in D.C. and We're not going to ask you to do what we want. We're going to tell you. So I think they get a lot more vocal, a lot more public. We're obviously going to head into the 2020 presidential race, and President Trump will not have the um the very soft and nice cushion of a complacent business community once we get into that perspective uh i also think that we'll continue to get news out of the Mueller investigation which will dominate headlines for the next two years
0: got it okay so uh i now uh, i've been ending every interview with sort of five more personal questions um so here we go so number one I wanted to ask you, you know, there's been plenty of sort of crazy rumors that we've heard about Trump, like he doesn't like to read, or people have said that he's, quote, mentally unfit. Uh, in your experience so far covering Washington, what's the craziest rumor or something that you've heard regarding the president?
1: Regarding President Trump personally?
0: Personally, yeah.
1: That he eats steak with ketchup.
0: That <laughs> I heard that's true, actually. Um, yeah, it's disgusting. Um, second question, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, based on your contacts in Congress, give me two adjectives that probably best describe how you think other congressional members might describe her
1: fundraiser and takes the heat.
0: Okay. Um, question three, if you were to go on a romantic getaway with any president living or dead, who would it be?
1: Does it have to be a president or can it be somebody else senior?
0: Uh, okay. I'll give you someone else senior.
1: I used to have the biggest crush on Steny Hoyer. I can't even help it. <laughs>
0: um, question four. It's early, but if you had to pick a front runner for the Democratic ticket, who would it be?
1: Kamala Harris.
0: Okay. And part f- uh, question five, I'm going to give you um, two true or falses. Um, true or false. In your, in your opinion— Uh, will Howard Schultz get 15% or more of the popular vote? False. And then the second question, true or false, will Michael Bloomberg enter the race? False. Any reason why you think he won't?
1: Because he's he's had me hoodwinked too many times for me to believe it's true.
0: (laughs) Got it. All right, well, Henrietta, as always, thanks so much for coming on today.
1: Thanks for having me, Mike. Talk to you soon.
0: Talk to you soon. Bye. My thanks again to Henrietta Trays of VEDA Partners. In full disclosure, I'm a client of theirs. I believe they do some of the best policy work out there in the field of healthcare reform, energy, and international relations. For for more information, you can reach them at VEDA at VEDA-Partners.com. And that concludes the podcast. This has been According to Sources for February twenty seventh, two 2019.